doing the right thing when a patient is harmed in the course of treatment may seem increasingly obvious these days, but it's one thing for a healthcare organization to know it should do the right thing in the event of a serious clinical adverse event and quite another to know what the right things are. And it's yet another level of understanding and preparation to put it all down on paper, to discuss with staff, to revise what's on paper, to train everyone who's bound to be affected, to be ready, in other words, really ready when something serious does occur. Welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, offered bi-weekly and also for your later listening and convenience as a downloadable file via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. One of Merriam-Webster's definitions of crisis includes, quote, the distinct possibility of a highly undesirable outcome. On this edition of WIHI, with a strong panel I'm about to introduce, we're going to be talking about desirable outcomes when faced with an undesirable adverse event. Uh, folks are still getting on board, and we welcome you and uh, to WIHI. And we're really honored to have three hospital senior leaders with us today to help ground our discussion in recent and some real events. Anthony Armada is president at, of Advocate Lutheran General Hospital and Advocate Lutheran General Children's Hospital based in Illinois. He's actually traveling today uh, in another Midwestern state, uh, and we're so glad we could catch up with him. Welcome, Tony. Thank you, Madge. Glad to be here. Terrific. Michael Fisher is president and CEO of Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center in Cincinnati, Ohio. Welcome, Michael. Thanks, Madge. Looking forward to it. Terrific. Uma Kodakal, Michael's colleague, is Cincinnati Children's Senior Vice President for Quality, Safety, and Transformation. Uma heads up the hospital Center for Health System Excellence. Welcome, Uma. Thank you, Madge. Uma had the healthiest lunch today. We just learned a few minutes ago. Sweet potato included. Michelle Hoppus is with us today to help us navigate risk management. She's the president of the American Society for Healthcare Risk Management. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you, Madge, and hello, everyone. Great. And last but never, never least is IHI Senior Fellow, one of IHI's former Senior Vice Presidents, Jim Conway. And he's going to tell you more about some of the work he's been involved with the past several months, which is very relevant uh, to the discussion today. And Jim really uh, helped me mastermind uh, getting all these folks together. So welcome, Jim. Thanks, Madge. Great to be here. All right. So if you're just getting connected, and I do see some folks still are, this is WIHI. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and we're going to get started. Now, Jim Conway and I both have a fondness for offering some background and context as a way of orienting everyone who's come together for learning and conversation, but we're also both getting better at doing this as quickly as possible. So uh, Jim is going to start us off, and Jim, it seems to me we are in the middle of a sea change of thinking and practices with respect to organizations and how they respond and manage serious events. What what does that look like, and how did we get there? Thanks, Jim. Well, Madge, um, one of the things we all know is every day within healthcare in the United States, there's exceptional <clears throat> care and caring that we see. But in the midst of that care and caring, we're also seeing that serious clinical adverse events happen in every organization. It's just going to be a matter of time. 
when these events occur, we have three priorities. The first, and always the first, is to the patient and family. The second is to the frontline staff. The last thing they wanted to do today was to hurt somebody. And the third is to the organization. Our overarching goal should always be that the patients, the family members, the frontline staff, and the organization say that in the aftermath of great tragedy, they were treated with respect. We know in healthcare that for certain type of adverse events, floods, fires, we have internal and external disaster plans to help guide our responses. But what we're finding related to clinical adverse events is on a good day, only 20 or 30% of organizations in the country have put together any type of a comprehensive approach. Far too often when we hear from organizations who call IHI approaching these events, they're doing it with a blank sheet of paper and they're having very mixed outcomes for all involved. And we continue to hear very directly from patients, from family members, and from frontline staffs that they are not respected in the aftermath of adverse events. For over a year, Madge, a team at IHI worked with courageous organizations, leaders, content experts, and the literature, and we put together a white paper on and some associated materials. On October 1st, we released this white paper with three objectives. The first was to encourage and help every organization to develop a clinical crisis management plan before they needed it. The second was to provide an approach to integrating this plan into the organizational culture of safety. And the third was in the absence of a plan, what we wanted to do was to provide organizations with concise, practical information to inform their efforts when a serious adverse event occurs, the equivalent of a 911 button that they could push. So this paper, and I want to remind people, this is available on the IHI uh, website. We've got a slide up here that's, if you're logged in via computer, uh, that gives you an e, excuse me, a URL, the tiny URL, and then Jesse McCall has just put one in um, also uh, in the chat area. Uh, anyone who is wondering uh, about resources who's joined by phone. You can always find these things out at info at IHI.org. Just let us know what you're looking for. So, Jim, this paper, uh, which really pulled together a lot of the knowledge that was bubbling up, at some level became like a shot heard around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. it, there's been tremendous response uh, to this white paper, and I think it's going to migrate its way through some of the remarks we're about mm -hmm. to hear. What can Tell us about mm -hmm. that just briefly and, and why you think that's the case. Sure. There's, um, just building on what you said, there are actually two resources. The first is this white paper, Respectful Management of Serious um, Adverse Events, and the second one is a resource center on the web that takes you to extraordinarily rich resources around the management of clinical crises. So what happened? 
20, since October 1st, 29,000 people have visited the landing site for the white paper. Over 9,000 have downloaded it from this site alone. We're seeing organizations, systems, captives, and countries evaluating comprehensive implementation of the recommendations. We're also seeing that Wonderful organizations, Kaiser Permanente, Catholic Health Partners, and Christiana Care Health Systems. These are organizations who have already developed plans. They've given IHI their plans to load on the website so others can build off of this. We are also hearing from organizations that are using the white paper to guide their management of serious adverse events, and then they're telling us about what they learned. And then at IHI, we're integrating this content into everything from our boards on board work to our patient safety offices training program. We had a great learning lab at the forum. So why did it happen? The first is, I think there's clearly a need. There's an extraordinary need. The second is we got lots of help. Premier, the National Association of Healthcare Quality, ASHRAM, ACOG, National Patient Safety Foundation, the Advisory Board, Health Leaders Media, Sorry Works, the ARC Patient Safety Net, and many others took this document and sent it out. Secondly, we had wonderful individuals ranging from patient activists to bloggers like Paul Levy who got this word out to their audience. At the same time, what we're also recognizing is we have a white paper, we have interest, but we still have to move to action, and that's why we're so encouraged and are so excited about this particular call. All right, Jim. Thank you very much. So that gives you a really big view, and uh, hopefully we'll begin to see that 20% or 30% uh, that you're saying have a plan, those those numbers begin to increase. Again, this is WIHI. All right. Thanks, Jim Conway. We're going to turn now to Cincinnati Children's and to Michael Fisher. Uh, where this discussion became quite real for him and his staff uh, last September when an infant died. Michael, you were prepared in many respects. We talked a little bit in advance of today, but also discovered some ways in which you weren't. I'd love it if you could sort of walk us through what happened and what gaps you discovered. And just uh, a reminder to everyone that I I have to, because of the, the brevity of our program, we do ask our guests to try and kind of boil things down. So we hope you'll appreciate this. This is at some level a flyover of very complex things, but we also invite you to continue learning with us. So, Michael, welcome. Thanks, Madge. And, and Jim, I wish you would have written that paper maybe in July instead of releasing it in October. But uh, as you said, we um, uh, had a, a serious safety event in August. It was actually August of 2010. Okay. Uh-huh. And maybe for some context, uh, because I think this will reinforce the importance of sort of CEO and board ownership and leadership, uh, I was only uh, eight months into my role as the CEO and had never really been in a healthcare leadership role before that. Um, but in that serious safety event, uh, very tragically, uh, a young child uh, ultimately died. Um, and, you know, then that uh, got some uh, media attention, and the media attention really resulted in, um, you know, a CMS-encouraged uh, visit by the Ohio Department of Health. 
And so really as a starting point, Madge, I would say there really were two crises. First, the initial serious safety event and the tragedy and uh, kind of the gut-wrenching dimensions of that for the family first and foremost, uh, and then uh, certainly our employees, particularly those closest to the issues uh, and, the, and the incident. Um, and then there really was crisis, too, because we had an initial visit from the Ohio Department of Health, and uh, frankly, we, uh, notwithstanding some things which I'll talk about in a moment, we really undermanaged that initial visit and our immediate response. And so then I think to, again, Jim's point, uh, that's when the organizational dimensions and impact became even clearer to us because uh, the stakes were extremely high in terms of reputation, trust, confidence, funding, and all of those things. So uh, really it's sort of two levels of crises. And, and I think, Madge, as you, as you touched on, um, in Cincinnati Children's case, we really felt that we were starting with a pretty strong foundation before this, and we have a, a terrific culture um, and lots of processes and practices in place. We had a, a history of a close collaboration between our board and our senior leadership in terms of commitment to safety. Uh, we actually have a pretty robust, dedicated infrastructure uh, and resources. We had an established root cause analysis for serious safety events. Uh, lots of uh, uh, emphasis uh, and capabilities in the improvement arena, uh, and very much of a patient-centered caring culture, and uh, also a history of transparencies uh, with our families uh, and with the board. So, you know, we, we really thought we were doing pretty well uh, before this event, um, but I think what, what this event uh, and really kind of both dimensions of the crises exposed, I think, some gaps, some weaknesses, and, and maybe even uh, more complacency than we realized. Uh, and so I think some of those gaps and weaknesses that we picked up on, and then maybe I'll touch on some of the improvements that we feel we've made and learned from this situation. That would be, that would be really helpful. Thanks. Yeah, great. So, so I think on some of the gaps and weaknesses, you know, that uh, we didn't have quite the level of disciplined operations, processes, and documentation that we found that we needed. Uh, our speed and urgency and sort of project management skills in a crisis scenario uh, weren't at the level they needed to be. And I think uh, really importantly, uh, we found that our uh, communication channels were inconsistent and not as effective as they needed to be. And sort of in today's world, you know, email by itself is just not going to cut it. And, um, and so I think, you know, fast forward now many months later, uh, and I think we would, uh, albeit not perfectly, I think we would say that we effectively ultimately managed this crisis. Uh, and so some of the improvements and actions and lessons learned, uh, one would be, and I'll, I'll uh, reference uh, one of the Cincinnati uh, CEO icons, uh, the recently retired CEO of Procter & Gamble, A.G. Laffley, wrote a, uh, a seminal work called What Only the CEO Can Do. And I think one of our learnings here is what only the CEO and board can do when it comes to this kind of a clinical safety event, tragic event, uh, you got to own it, you got to immerse in it, and really uh, galvanize the team to, to make the changes and improvements and response that needs to happen. I think secondly, on a more specific level, on our root cause analysis, uh, we learned that we needed to dramatically accelerate uh, how quickly we conduct the root cause analysis and implement the changes and even take sort of remedial action before the root cause analysis is complete. 
I think another thing, Madge, we learned was uh, how to better manage a, a regulatory visit under uh, heavy scrutiny like this. And, you know, from everything from better anticipating all the relevant issues and questions they might want to, uh, you know, catch up on to putting in processes like a daily debrief at the end of each session with the uh, uh, regulatory visitors, uh, a real-time IT support personnel to escort and work with the regulatory visitors. Um, and, you know, we also uh, had some learnings in the area of uh, how critical the linkage is between patient safety and employee safety. And that's led to uh, a system-wide daily uh, safety huddle that we now do uh, that really is much more predictive and anticipatory. And um, I could go on and on some things we did in the uh, equipment management arena, the competency training arena, um, and, and, and certainly about communication especially to the front line. And uh, so I think I'll take a pause there, but I think it gives you a flavor of what, we, what we've learned from this. Terrific. Thank you so much, Michael. I, um, maybe we'll ask you more, a little bit more about employee safety and patient safety. That sounds uh, interesting uh, and important. Um, so I'll sort of flag that and we'll, we'll pull that right into questions. Uma Kodagal, is there anything that you want to uh, add as you listen to Michael? I know you'll kind of weave in and out also with the discussion, but before I, I turn to Tony, Anything you want to add to this? I think the I think I would reinforce Michael's comment about the sense of urgency with which we needed to act. And even though we felt we acted with a sense of urgency, we did not. Uh, and that got a lot better. And the second is, uh, which Michael touched the, at the end, the communication at the family level, at the uh, you know caregiver level that Jim Conway referred to, and at the organization level, and using this crisis is a mechanism to learn and mobilize the organization towards more, um, you know, more safety in everyday work. If, if, if I could, Madge, one, one quick thing I would add is, um, in, in a related point, I mentioned the foundational strong trusting relationship we already had with our board, but our, our board really uh, went shoulder to shoulder with us on this to help us navigate it, set up a special task force, which uh, you know, we communicated with frequently, and it was really great to have almost like an internal sounding board to make sure we weren't missing things as we went through it. And I think that was a real uh, strength and a real learning. Okay, very good. All right, thank, thank you so much, uh, both of you, Michael Fisher and Uma Kodogal for Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. And again, you're tuned to WIHI, and we're talking about effective crisis management, respectful crisis management. All right, Tony Armato of Advocate Lutheran, you've been listening, and uh, I don't know where the similarities are and, and differences, but uh, pick it up for us, sir. Uh, right here in terms of uh, uh, what unfolded also uh, late last summer, I guess, or early fall uh, for you at, at your organization uh, and some of uh, what you discovered you were prepared for, not prepared for, and some key learning. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Madge. And, uh, and again, uh, as, as we heard, uh, there are a lot of similarities with regards to our organizations regarding uh, strong foundations, committed associates, uh, improvement arena and transparency and uh, what I hope to do in the next couple of minutes is give you a synopsis of what has happened and some of our key learning so uh, our case is is, uh, uh, is a premature infant who had been in our NICU for care uh, for a month and, and, and actually uh, died after receiving the wrong concentration of IV fluids the baby actually was having a nice recovery of health 
in our NICU the month prior with the family having the best experience that they can have for their baby. Uh, right after the serious clinical adverse event, uh, the death of the infant, an investigation was prompted by our physicians and our nurses, and really a uh, root cause analysis approach was, uh, uh, was ensued. Uh, it was at that point that the human error was actually discovered, and uh, as we had discovered that, uh, we then uh, contacted the family, and a team of us led by myself, uh, along with uh, uh, our uh, caregiving team, spiritual care, uh, our social workers, uh, actually fully disclosed this to the mother and father. Uh, we, at that point, were very committed to supporting the family and maintaining direct contact with the family, uh, and uh, up until uh, the family actually retained legal counsel. And then, most recently, this is back. This incident happened back in October of 2010, and most recently, uh, this past Friday uh, and Monday and Tuesday, uh, we started to deal with a. Uh, uh, a public address of the of the plaintiff's legal counsel, and actually had to deal with the media. Mm. So, uh, a lot of learnings uh, that I would like to share. Uh, it, it, number one is uh, obviously we had a privilege of having a relationship with Jim Conway. So when we were dealing with this, we gave actually gave a call to Jim, and we want to thank him and recognize him for his part in how we dealt with this uh, uh, critical adverse uh, uh, event and actually uh, also uh, had the pleasure of, of purviewing the, the white paper that was discovered, uh, that was referenced. Uh, secondly is that, you know, we uh, uh, found out that we really do not have a very uh, uh, good crisis team uh, to these types of uh, events, and we've been able to actually improve that. Uh, and uh, uh, thirdly is uh, uh, as we delivered the message uh, to the uh, uh, family members, I think it was key that we had uh, staff that actually had relationships with the patients. So that uh, in our instance, when we delivered the message, uh, the mother actually stepped out of the room because she was so upset. And one of our social workers actually, who had a relationship with the patient, actually were, was able to step out of the room with the mother and continue to make sure that we had the support mechanism for the family and, and, and really be there for them. Um, I think the other portion of this is uh, 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 as we started to uh, now look at this whole notion of uh, uh, the frontline staff, uh, we had uh, uh, rounds with all of the affected departments and, and uh, made sure we have we gave them support. But I think more importantly is uh, uh, we actually had, again, our spiritual care uh, staff with us, our employee assistance and, and support groups uh, ready to support in any which way. And we were able to address that uh, along with myself and, and key senior leaders. I think one of the things that I wanted to highlight, Madge, is this, is this whole thing about uh, what recently happened to us, and and, and this is the uh, the uh, uh, arena where uh, we went through this with the staff in October, but we had to most recently go through this again because of the media blitz uh, way after uh, the death of the infant. And uh, and one of the big learnings I think that we had, along with going through the same learnings that I just uh, articulated earlier, is this whole notion that in this particular instance we now have to deal with patients that actually have their 
uh, our family members are actually have their patients under our care. Right. And uh, and and at that at this particular point, uh, we really had to uh, make sure that we were there for our front line. Uh, we uh, met with the NICU staff because uh, we expected the frontline staff to actually be able to have a dialogue with the patient right after the uh, the news broke in the in in, in the TV uh, for the night shift as well as the morning shift and and I could tell you that uh, boy uh, we we didn't read anything like that uh, uh, in in any of the white papers and I think it's a key learning because. Uh, Actually, uh, our uh, leader for spiritual care said, you know, well, what about the patients that are maybe hearing about this now? And it was a real key learning for us. And, and I think uh, uh, something that, uh, that, 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 that was very worthwhile to share. I mean, we did all of the other things uh, that, uh, that we needed to do uh, from a CEO or president standpoint. I was, in, I was in front of a lot of audiences through this. The organization communication was very, very good. And then yesterday, we actually had a video message with myself and my chief nurse executive, again, to make sure that we have our organization grounded. Yet, on one hand, we have all these accolades of being a top hospital in the country. On the other hand, it's really humbling to be able to deal with these types of events that we all know that's going to be a good way for us to continue to improve and be the best organization that we can possibly be. Wow, Tony, thank you so much. You've you've uh, raised so much, and I see Jim scribbling uh, some things down there. Um, and such an important point about uh, the the time period in which these things unfold and occur. And, you know, how even the community affected, um, you know, there's a community under your care and things uh, will uh, sort of rise to the surface again. Uh, just a very quick question before I turn to Michelle. Uh, Hoppus, uh, did, you, did the frontline staff uh, really appreciate and embrace, in a sense, being empowered to have these conversations uh, with, with patients? Sometimes these things can uh, sometimes get very uh, tightly wound into somebody else's uh, message. And I'm wondering how that sort of diverse um, uh, way of, of allowing frontline staff to feel empowered to have those conversations, how that went went over. Actually, it was very well embraced, uh, and, and I can I can share that only because of all of the messages and all of the communication that I got, not only from the frontline staff, from the middle managers and senior leaders, but more importantly from the community members from our board as well as uh, our physicians. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, everybody just rallied uh, because we know that you know, these things uh, do happen. We are, are, are very sorry for the, the adverse event, uh, but yet uh, I think uh, the organization responded very, very nicely, uh, very, very appropriately with the key thought in mind that you know, there's a learning in here that can make us better for the future. Okay, thank you so much. All right, you've just been listening uh, to Tony Armada from Advocate Lutheran General uh, Hospital and Advocate Lutheran Children's Hospital. Uh, all right, uh, before we go to chat, uh, Michelle Hoppus is going to sort of set the table for us just a little further. Uh, from the American Society for Health Risk Management, Healthcare Risk Management. And uh, Michelle, um, it's wonderful to have you here. There's a whole bunch of resources that we got from Ashram uh, today that are going to be added to our website, so we're thrilled to have those hot off the press. 
Um, but I, I think here again, Michelle, you've been listening to all of this, and I guess the big question uh, is how is how are things changing in the risk management community such that what you're doing and, and how you can work with hospitals is sort of aligned with the white paper and all the actions we're hearing about today? Well, thanks, Madge. I tell you, on behalf of Ashram, we are so pleased to have this opportunity to participate. And I want to just pause and applaud the work both of IHI and especially the leaders on this call today. What excellent role models and examples. Ashram is really very strongly aligned with the concepts and the approach related to respectful management of serious safety events. And really, it's our privilege to support this work. The message in this work is consistent with our core values of our members. And even more specifically, it's really consistent with our mission, which is safe and trusted healthcare. So to respond to your question in regards to what's changing or how will ASHRAM further support and advance this work, I think it might be easiest to just briefly discuss our efforts, looking kind of at the past, you know, what have we done, what are we currently doing today, and then what do we see for the future? So in regards to the past, I believe ASHRAM has been at the forefront of trying to promote disclosure and respectful management of serious safety events. And probably the best example is the release of our disclosure monograph. This was released in a series of installments about 10 years ago, so clearly we've been working on this for a long time. The first paper focuses on the need for better communication with patients, and we heard a lot about that today from our other speakers. It also includes discussion regarding the psychological and the legal barriers that have existed in relation to open communication. There's several communication models that are described to really address effective disclosure methods. And then the second paper outlines the core elements for a disclosure policy. And as I've heard, a policy is certainly not the end all. The policy is the beginning of an understanding. The third really outlines the skill-based model for disclosure with a primary focus on preparation and planning. I think we've heard quite a bit today about the need both for preparation and planning. So all of these papers as matched that are available to the participants on this call today. We encourage you to take a look at those. And if I were to summarize in three words the ashram spirit and the message of the disclosure monograph, it would first be to say empathy. Second would be timeliness, that sense of urgency that we heard the previous speakers talk about today, and Uma even reinforced the issue around timeliness or the sense of urgency. And the third is honesty, managing serious safety events and unanticipated outcomes in a respectful manner. And really, with an empathetic approach, it's key to our core values. So that really highlights one of the most significant approaches of the past in relation to how ASHRAM has supported and promoted this work. As for the current state, the Disclosure Monograph is actually one of the top downloaded ASHRAM tools in our history and is commonly referred to as a leading resource. There's also many risk managers across our country today that are trying to break down those hysterical barriers. And really, when you talk about MADGE, what's the change? We're trying to lead the way, both in disclosure and in transparency. There's evidence out there now that open, honest, and empathetic approaches are best. They're best for the healing of our patients and they're best for the healing of our providers. So a significant component of management of serious safety events from the risk management perspective is really three key areas. It's prevention, detection, and correction. And that's preventing a serious safety event from occurring in the first place and trying to do that through proactive approaches and then detecting them before they reach or harm a patient. And if prevention fails, it's correcting or reducing the likelihood of reoccurrence. And we heard one of our speakers talking about the need to accelerate the root cause analysis process. That's so true. 
critical event management and prevention is a core competency of the risk manager. And back to your question, then, in regards to how ASHRAM and the risk management community is supporting this work is really through continued education, efforts at culture change in our organizations, encouraging the formal standardization for respectfully managing critical events, and through some innovative approach where some risk management leaders today are identifying methods to drive down the frequency of serious safety events. And really, to incorporate both the concepts of a just culture and reliability science. So to summarize the current state, consistent with our mission around both risk management and patient safety, we acknowledge there is still a level of misunderstanding and or fear in relation to the respectful management of these events. And through ASHRAM support, we'll continue to provide resources and tools to assist our members and others in making healthcare safer, to prevent patient harm, and if prevention fails, to reach out compassionately, timely, and honestly with our patients and their families. So our goal is for risk management and patient safety professionals to be at the center promoting the respectful management approach. So for the future, I believe we need to continue to work together to break down barriers, and we'll continue to do so through education and collaboration, just like how we're demonstrating on this call today. I think the involvement of the leaders, like the ones I've heard from so far, are such excellent role models and truly the examples that are needed for the healthcare community. So the future is also about further collaboration of all stakeholders, and that's including our patients and our families. And although I do believe we've made some strides towards respectful management of serious safety events, we know the healthcare community still has work to do. And through continued efforts to facilitate the culture change, and that's a lot of it, we are talking about culture change. Yep. I believe, you know, we can move further away from these historic perceptions related to, you know, fear of blame or fear of litigation to a much more balanced approach, which is really about respect, healing, and prevention. And at the core of this, and at the best interest of our patients to be truly at the center. So thank you for allowing Ashram to comment, yeah, sure. and we are truly advocates of this approach. Well, thank you so much, uh, Michelle Hoppus, and I really appreciate a perspective, and that really does represent, I think, a lot of change in practice, a lot of change, I think, in perception also, I think, about risk management. Um, I guess I'm, we're, we're just, I'm sorry, we're just a few minutes over the half hour mark, but I want to bring Jim Conway in just for just a minute or two before we open things up for question and comments. So, Jim, even starting with this last thing, uh, it seems as though this is yet another piece of the puzzle that's changing uh, because I'm sure you would agree that a lot of um, some of the paralysis still on this um, in this space when you were talking about the 20 or 30 percent or I think you were recently uh, somewhere where you said uh, very few people in the room uh, could speak of a, a, a plan in terms of hospital leaders. I don't know if people are using risk managers, what, with the, what their advice is from risk managers as an excuse or if in fact th this is the, sort of the change that has to come about. Your thoughts? Well, the very clear message, we got this at the National Association of Healthcare Quality Meeting in spades, and we're also getting it in our conversations around the country, is leaders are not being, feeling that they're getting a signal that this is a place that their organization wants to go, that there is still a dramatic overemphasis on secrecy, on lack of discussion. These cases, I mean, it's so striking to me that our two speakers talked about the leadership of this at the governance and executive leadership level. When I do the boards on board work, I ask, and we've now 
been involved with educating over 3,000 trustees and executive leaders in their work in quality and safety. One of the questions we ask them is, do you have a mechanism for the board of trust uh, outline that defines how the board of trustees is notified when an adverse event occurs? In the vast majority of cases, the answer is no. So, yeah. so these cases are being managed by people close to the work where people hunker in yeah. and try to get through it as opposed to the governance and executive leadership setting a very clear expectation that this is what we're doing. Uh, you know, the, the reason why we were so excited about having these two organizations come on is they set the message that we believe has to be set in the aftermath of, tra of these tragedies is the first step has to be taken by the governing board and executive leadership in order for this to achieve the respectful outcomes we really want to achieve. You know, there's... Um, Dale Michelisi a long time said to me when her child uh, came into, uh, her child died after an adverse event, she said, Jim, I walked him into the hospital, I carried him home in a box. Why wouldn't anybody talk to me? And it's because there was not clarity from the top about how we were going to respond respectfully in the aftermath of an event, preventable or not, it was nonetheless a great tragedy. Okay, very good. Thank you so much, Jim. All right, uh, Jesse, let's remind, thank you all. Uh, thanks for all the remarks. Thanks, uh, participants, for being patient with us as we got as much out as we could before we open things up now to you. Jesse, remind everybody uh, how to participate on the chat. Sure thing, Madge. So I just enabled everyone to be able to chat in their questions. Um, you can enter the text in the text entry box in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen and make sure that you send those messages to all participants. That's going to let everyone that's on our program uh, see your questions and we can uh, address them as they're coming in. Uh, so a couple of questions that snuck in there ahead of time are around root cause analysis. Uh, so I think the first part of it would go to um, Michael or Anthony. Uh, how long after an event should a root cause analysis be conducted? And then uh, I think, Jim, this one's for you, your thoughts about um, proactive disclosure to the media rather than waiting for them to find out. Okay. Um, two, two, uh, two hefty topics. Thank you so much, uh, Jesse. So let's, let's go for the first one. I'll go back to you, Michael and Uma. Let's talk about that timeliness uh, around the root cause analysis. Can you get a little more specific, excuse me, specific so, uh, about I, it? Yeah. So I think... Uh, the importance of the early investigation and the timeliness of that is critical. So as soon as we understand that there might be a patient that is harmed, our risk management team begins its investigation and we try to get to everybody within a fairly short period of time. Also, we try to verify every piece of information that we get by two independent observers or two independent participants. We have moved to a very structured process for our root cause analysis using some uh, processes that come more from the nuclear industry, uh, and our process is a standardized process that is a three-meeting process with the appropriate leaders there, and at the end of that, really a very uh, specific diagram of the process 
where the primary um, uh, error might be and where the contributing errors are, and then specifically from that, a series of action steps that are classified in at four levels. Immediate action, um, the second is action at the level of the microsystem, the third is level action at the level of the microsystem that needs to be scaled to the whole organization, and the fourth is an existing improvement project into which this particular process error fits. I think along with that portion of the root cause analysis process, uh, we have a standardized process and have had for some time of immediate apology to the family by the senior clinician on the team, very frequently the attending physician, but sometimes might be the chief of staff or the patient safety officer, with full transparency and disclosure of saying a harm occurred, this is what happened, uh, we will get back to you with the results of the root cause process. The tension I heard in both Jim's comments and the earlier comments between trust and transparency is important here. So I think without the trust, and I think part of Michael's comment about the public disclosure of this event and the, and the erosion of trust that, it can, that can arise that I think Tony also referred to is important. So the family has to understand and know the information. We have to apologize immediately, and we have to tell them what we learned in the root cause process and what we're doing to address it. Thank you, Uma. May I ask you uh, if you could just very quickly give me some sense of the time that has passed. If you were, uh, you talked about sort of different stages of the root cause analysis. Uh, yeah, the so qu questioner may have been wondering also sort of what, what time period are we talking about? So in the old days, I think we would, um, you know, have a root cause process. We would try to get everybody at the table. It would be a large group. It would take us a while to get people at the table. And by the time we got to people at the table, the investigative process of it was not always comprehensive. So now we start the investigative process within 24 hours. We try in the, in, within a three-day period to get to everybody with then secondary verification, maybe over the next week to 10 days. We assign a senior leadership person to be responsible for that root cause process requiring that people attend that meeting with a sense of urgency. Our root cause process might take a couple weeks. We are able to come back with a response. One of the things that we've modified as part of this serious event is that after, if the level of harm is high, we want to quickly activate a second arm that has somebody senior in charge that addresses the immediate consequences and the immediate responses, like getting the medication out right or making sure the dilution is right or solving the immediate problem. Okay, Does that, that give your answer? Yes, absolutely. Okay. That's very, very helpful. Thank you so much. Um, I think what I'll do for the second part of Jesse's question, uh, he thought maybe Jim might tackle this, but I think I'm going to start with Anthony, Tony, on this one, because you just again uh, went through an experience with the media, and the question really had to do with being proactive uh, with the press. And now that you have gone through perhaps two major, uh, you know, passes with the press uh, in the immediate uh, uh, aftermath of the event and this time through some legal proceedings, what are your thoughts about sort of being more proactive and have you learned some things there? Well, I think uh, the first learning is uh, when, when the incident actually occurred back in October, uh, we really wanted to make sure we were respectful with the family and try to understand what the family wanted. And, and we've had dialogue with them as well as legal counsel relative to uh, understanding the timing of press releases and so on and so forth. Unfortunately, that was not the case. Uh, legal, their legal counsel decided to uh, have a press conference.
conference without us. And, and so it kind of put us in a very defensive position in a sense that we responded to the questions that we got from the press. But at the same time, uh, the vehicle, one, one of the major uh, newspaper vehicles actually has asked us, Advocate Healthcare, where our chief medical officer actually had an in-depth interview uh, with the Chicago Tribune so that hopefully we will be able to not only share with them the story uh, that is based primarily on what do we need to do so that we are more uh, adept in, in handling uh, clinical events and more importantly really the transparency of the communication of these types of events. And, and we feel as advocate healthcare, that is our policy, but more importantly for this particular instance, we were very transparent with the, with the family members. Okay, thank you very, very much. I appreciate it. I want to remind everybody, uh, we welcome your comments and uh, questions. Uh, feel free and uh, uh, share any of your own, learning from your own experiences. Um, I want to go back to Michael. Uh, there's a question that about uh, just saying a little bit more about huddles uh, and also the, I, the sort of relationship for, between patient safety and employee safety. Uh, somebody is curious about that. Yeah, so, so maybe a, a couple comments on that, Madge. I mean, we, we have found that that uh, real-time daily interaction uh, where you talk about what's been going on the last 24 hours, what's coming down the pike the next 24 hours, not only in terms of uh, patient mix and uh, complexity, uh, but also it could be a range of other factors. You know, do we have some key staff who are out today that might, you know, have a skill set that we are lacking, or was there some change in equipment or process? You know, we have found doing that both by way of example uh, in the periop area on a daily basis and also system-wide uh, has really uh, just raised the awareness and, and uh, uh, raised our ability to uh, prevent uh, we think incidents from happening, and we've actually seen some uh, significant results on that uh, over the last six months. Um, so, you know, that's and, and I think part of what happens when you involve, by way of example, in that daily safety huddle, which includes about 18 different people participating from across the enterprise, including things like security and facilities and home care and and supplies. Uh, what you start to see is that issues uh, that might affect uh, patient safety also could affect uh, employee safety and vice versa. So, so we have uh, had that as, I think, a fertile learning opportunity that's really uh, also changing the way we're overall governing uh, our safety areas and doing our training. Uma? I think the, Go ahead, the, rela yep. the relationship between patients and employee safety is, is pretty obvious in retrospect, but hard for us to think about when we were working on it. So it comes under the under the rubric of a high reliability organization where the behavior is really in healthcare one of autonomous characters that might take risk personally, but also take risk with the patient. So the overlap on standardized processes on understanding mindful behavior is pretty big. And then that has led us to this idea of huddles and situational awareness and prediction. So an example of where employee safety and patient safety would overlap might be in our mental health hospital where we have children that are aggressive because of, uh, you know, both illness and prior circumstance. And that puts both the children at risk and the employee at risk. We have a, um, a prediction model that allows us to look at regression scores on kids 
that would give us an idea of who might be more likely to act out or or perhaps even be violent towards themselves or to the employee. Mm -hmm. Knowing that on a call that 40% of the, of a, of a, you know, on a particular day of children are, are rated as being aggressive at the same time as there's a snowstorm approaching at the same time as we want to be sure that we have the right staff with the right level of experience available would be an example of a prediction that would result in decreasing employee and patient harm at the same time. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's that's clear. Thank you. That's actually a lot of really helpful information. Uh, Uma, I, just a very quick thing. You referred to a lot of your uh, interesting plans and protocols and talked about some things from the nuclear industry. I was curious, is is any of that, uh, is that a, a resource in any way that anyone else might be able to tap into uh, any of the stuff or maybe in the near future? I think the company organization we've worked with for several years on this is HPI. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and uh, they are composed of people from the nuclear industry, and um, we work with them closely, and I would refer to their website and to their protocols, but they've trained a lot of our... Uh, of our key safety and risk management folks in a common root cause analysis process and a common cause analysis process that allows us to look across the system. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Jim, yeah. May I just want to acknowledge that we actually link in the white paper uh, to the HPI work. You will see a citation that takes you directly onto the HPI website and the content that Uma just referred to. Okay, Jim, uh, come come back to the microphone because I have another question for you. There's a couple people who have asked about patient engagement, excuse me, engagement in root cause analysis sure. uh, and the role of kind of patients. It was one of my questions in my back pockets, which has sort of been activated patients also being part of developing these kinds of plans. Uh, but maybe you could talk about both of those things. Sure. Uh in the, in the aftermath of adverse events, there was, there's often nobody who is closer to the patient in the last eight hours or 25 hours than the family member who was with them at the bedside in the clinic or wherever any, uh, the event occurred. We believe very strongly in our work that the family should have a role in the root cause analysis. It is not necessarily sitting in the RCA meeting, but the family is respectfully listening to what did they see, what did they observe. They normally bring insights that we didn't have because we weren't in the room. The family can also alert us to things that we didn't, gaps that we didn't know they had occurred. So there's actually a wonderful paper out of the former president of Ashram, Terry Zimmerman. Uh, that's her right name, Michelle, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, we link to it in the white paper uh, that talks about uh, – Engaging the family in the RCA, Dan Ford has also done some very nice work in that. So that's linked to, you know, with respect to this whole inclusion of the patient and family in this process, I'm a family member, my family has care, and I know stuff happens. So the first thing is we have to stop pretending that the fact that errors happen is a secret to the family. They're not. The family, there's been some great papers that have come out that says the families actually see a lot more than the healthcare uh, team does. 
So I think we, we have a golden opportunity, and there's a lot, again, of citations in the paper of organizations who have figured out how to invite patients and family members into the process of risk identification and risk mitigation. And, and um, I've had the privilege of having four patients and families on the board quality committee of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute for nine years, and they brought tremendous insight that nobody else sitting around the table had because they weren't involved in the care experience in the same way. Okay, thank you so much, Jim. Uh, appreciate all the questions and comments, so try to get to as many of uh, them as possible. Ruth is thanking uh, for sharing your wealth of knowledge and experience with us. Thank you, Ruth, uh, for that uh, comment. I want to ask, um, maybe I'll, I'll uh, sort of put put this back to uh, Michelle, bring you back in here. Michelle Hoppus, I don't know whether it, as part of uh, risk management, what role, if any, uh, can uh, risk managers play in helping to ensure that all the various departments in a hospital are all kind of on the same page. Somebody is saying here that there are policies with human resources uh, sometimes that sort of conflict uh, with the other kinds of uh, evolving policies that um, uh, we're, we're talking about today. Any, anything on that point? Yeah, there is. Actually, that's a great question, Madge. And really the role of the risk manager is to be the collaborator, to integrate within the disciplines within the organization. And occasionally I do see or experience where the HR policies might somewhat be conflicting with the roles of uh, root cause analysis or trying to share the lessons very broadly across the organization. Generally what we recommend is that really it's two separate approaches. The HR component really needs to be handled under that umbrella. And the serious safety event and the risk reduction that we're talking about here today, including the root cause analysis, that really needs to come under our quality, risk management, patient safety umbrella. So I would really separate those two. I hope that answers the question. Oh, sure. Okay. Well, let's uh, feel free, folks who are joining us, uh, to chat in your own thoughts about any of the questions and comments uh, to add to what our guests are saying. Uh, there's a, a another question that has to do with, and I think uh, maybe I'll go back to Tony uh, for this. Um, let's see. Sorry, I just lost my – the transparency issue somebody is asking about. I think this came uh, into Jesse, and he's sharing it with us, or maybe it's Jesse's question. Ah, it's one of our uh, in-studio guest questions, <laughs> one of our fellows is asking about uh, find that right balance. You want to be transparent with the patients in your community under your care right now, and of course people don't want to be alarmed. Tony, can you, you speak to that? Because you this is something you've referred to that, that ju just went on in the organization. Well, uh, I think, uh, Madge, first of all, uh, there was an adverse uh, event here. So uh, we have an open transparency uh, policy uh, that we're very transparent with that, and, and, and we do that with our senior leadership as well as the physician and clinicians that are involved in the care. Uh, on the other hand, you know, we uh, dealt with a, an, an, an issue where uh, there's actually a, uh, a lapse, and uh, and again, you know, we we were with, you know we were uh, making sure that we work with the family. Uh, but once we had to make sure that that we can can communicate, we uh, became very transparent in in, uh, in in not only addressing our internal audience but certainly addressing the external audience. And again, like I said earlier, the biggest piece of learning for this is being able to have that one-on-one -on -one dialogue and with those that have relationships with the family members, 
so that you know we reassure them that their baby and their patients are getting great care at our facility at this particular time, despite of all the media blitz that's occurring. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. It's hard for me to believe that we're uh, swimming up here to the top of the hour, and I want to be respectful of everyone's time, including that of our the, the time of our guests here. Uh, I think I just want to very fast go around the horn, uh, kind of some parting words. Uh, uh, I'll start with Michael and uh, Uma, and thank you so much for your time today. Uh, great, Madge. Uh, one, uh, just, you know, this was a great, great session. Uh, I just say our learnings on effective crisis management, you know, prepare a plan, routinely practice, challenge, and improve it. Uh, respond with urgency, intensity, resiliency, and e- enormous amount of communication. Um, and then use the crisis to really uh, galvanize uh, your organization to learn, grow, and never forget. And I think the never forgets really about the respect for the patient and the family. All right. Uma? I would say that uh, the transparency, uh, not just with the people involved in the incident, but with the entire organization so they understand the vulnerability and that we are in a high-risk business and that harm can come to a patient at any time is important. So. Um, I would say that we emphasize that a lot through our intern- intranet and through immediate communication to everybody about a serious event that has happened. Thank you so much. Michelle Hoppus, uh, final parting words for today. You know, I agree with everything that has just been said, so not to repeat that. I'm going to focus just a little bit differently and just uh, kind of leave on the note of culture, the importance of that executive sponsor the top level of the organization being engaged and involved, that really sets the stage for the culture around what we're talking about today. All right. Thank you so much, Michelle. Tony, uh, who's uh, transporting himself and his family, I think, to a volleyball championship, uh, uh, thank you so much for making the time today. And any parting words? Yeah, Madge, along this road, what's said, I never an under, uh, under, under anticipate or, or overemphasize that uh, – our staff is very vulnerable, and we need to be there for them, to support them, to let them understand that this is a culture of safety and something that we can improve and rally from. Okay, thank you so much. Jim, uh, some parting thoughts here. Um, so, to Madge, the first, many of the questions and the comments posted were around staff support, and I want to just point people to a new resource that's up on the website. It's called... Uh, Mitch Tools Medically Induced Support Services has put together an amazing resources on tools that are available to support staff during dealing with uh, medical error, you can get it through to it through the Effective Crisis Management website or www.mitchtools.org, and we'll put that up. The final thing I want to say is something I learned in my 10 years at Dana-Farber is that errors don't erode trust the way we act after the era does. All right. Can never say that too many times. Well, we are always grateful to have uh, your your wisdom, uh, Jim Conway, and really, really thank the wisdom and the courage and the sharing from all of our guests today. This has been a really tremendous uh, privilege for me to host this discussion. Next up on WIHI, and we have a sort of a special edition, uh, The Power to Detect and Improve in Revisiting the IHI Global Trigger Tool and Adverse Events. That's next Thursday, 2 to 3. 
3 p.m. Uh, tied to a new article that's out in Health Affairs uh, talking about some new research findings on the power and sensitivity of the global trigger tool. And we'll have the lead author on that and some experts, and we hope you'll join that discussion. Information about all of that is on the website right now. A reminder, everyone who logged on today, when you uh, get off the program, it's going to ask, do you want to download the slides? Say yes if you want to do that. Do you want to download the chat? Yes if you want to do that. Um, and also, if you can take a moment to fill out a survey, it's a brief survey, but it helps us uh, know what worked, what didn't work, and how we can continue to improve. If you are on the phone today only and there's resources that you're looking for, don't hesitate to email us at info at IHI.org. The people who help make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Matt Morse, Vicki Minden. A big shout out to Jim Conway for his help in planning this program today and all his support to me. The music that opens and closes WIHI original arrangements by Aaron Flanders on guitar and Miguel Sapasoa on piano. Again, a big thank you to everyone. It is my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone.